Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's where I'll be speaking to the G7 folks. So some of the heads of the European Union and uh, NATO today. That's why I'm announcing more than 500 new sanctions in response. Good afternoon, friends. Happy Friday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with the afternoons on QR Calgary. U.S. President Joe Biden today announcing new sanctions against Russia in response to what he calls their brutal war of conflict in Ukraine and also, of course, uh, the murder of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Now, Canada today also uh, joining with the U.S., the U.K., and the European Union in slapping new sanctions on Russia. Canada's unveiled sanctions against 153 entities, 10 individuals, including an aide to President Putin and senior officials at private and state-owned companies in Russia. That came from Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie today. Tomorrow marks the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a war that has um, you know, resulted in much devastation and destruction and death. The scars of this are going to be felt for generations. But, of course, it has not gone as planned on Russia's part. It was supposed to be an operation that would take days or weeks. Here we are now about to enter the third year of this conflict. Uh, but it is taking a toll. And I think there is concern uh, as to whether that Western support for Ukraine is going to continue to be there. And if Ukraine doesn't have the supplies it needs to fight the war, does that open the door here uh, for a possible Russian victory? So some big questions as we get set to mark uh, this anniversary tomorrow. Now, with this uh, invasion now entering its third year, a lot of Canadians have been among the foreign recruits who have been trying to help fill the voids in Ukraine's defense. Global's Crystal Gamansing, who has been covering this war for now for two years, spoke with some of the Canadians on the front lines about their experience. My family is really supportive in all this. Winter in Ukraine looks and feels a lot like it does on the prairies. But this isn't Edmonton. It's Izum. And we caught up with Jesse just before he was set to head back out to the front line. It'll harden you and make you pretty tough pretty quick. Previously, he was a paratrooper with the Canadian Armed Forces. Since March 2022, the proud Ukrainian Canadian has been working to repel invading Russian forces. First around Kyiv, then Zaporizhia. Now his unit is positioned near Bakhmut. Every single battle I've been, it's been overwhelming Russian artillery hammering our positions and less significantly less shells going back towards the Russians. Munitions, weapons and items for soldiers such as night vision goggles are still needed. Getting these items into Ukraine in a timely matter is still problematic. Canada this week announced more than 800 sophisticated drones with night capabilities for Ukraine. Delivery is slated for the spring. The money for them was announced in June of last year. Still, allied nations such as Canada say Ukraine has their total support. Dave Smith, who is also fighting for Ukraine, disagrees. Fixed military procurement, both for my own, you know, uh, brothers and sisters back in the Canadian Armed Forces, but also just to be a reliable international partner when it comes to global security. 
Smith requested voluntary release from the Canadian Armed Forces so he could fight for Ukraine. He was last on the front lines in early December. Soldiers, he says, don't get to stop operations when supplies run low. The operations just become more dangerous. Ukraine doesn't release soldier fatality numbers, saying only their losses are not as high as the Russians. We do know there is a push to replenish the ranks. Late last year, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that the military leadership asked for up to 500,000 new recruits. It does definitely wear on you, for sure, being in those positions with the amount of drones and how much the Russians have here. But everyone here still is highly motivated. Mobilization efforts mean billboards are everywhere. This one reads, the victory is in your hands, join the army. Contentious legislation is also moving through Ukraine's parliament. The latest version includes lowering the draft age from 27 to 25 and making basic military service compulsory for males 18 to 25. Mentally preparing yourself to go fight is the best way to get ready for a fight. Um, but it's a lot easier to do when you know that you have F-16s and 155 shells and you have the tools required to do the job. There are soldiers from all over the world fighting here in Ukraine. The Canadians we spoke with say they know the risks and they also know what's at stake. They hope allies of Ukraine will continue to support them as long as it takes. Crystal Gamansen, Global News, Kharkiv region, Ukraine. Among the Canadians on the ground in Ukraine, Calgarian Paul Hughes, his son Mackenzie, they've been in Ukraine since March of 2022. They've been doing some important humanitarian work. They founded a group called Hugs, helping Ukraine grassroots support. You can read more about their work at hugsukraine.org. Paul is in Kharkiv and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. How are things over there? Well, it's the uh, eve of uh, the second anniversary of the war. So yeah. there's been a few sirens today. Nobody's nobody's quite sure what uh, what would happen. We're fairly close to the border. So um, uh, today we worked, though. We, we helped uh, a kitchen, a kids program. Uh, we did some training with uh, our smart program, did some training. And uh, we packed up for another mission. Well, let's start with, by talking about, I guess, you know, where you've been focused since you uh, arrived there back in, I believe, was was uh, now almost two years ago, March of 2022. Now, you're uh, in uh, Kharkiv then. Are you able to talk about where you are? Yeah, we're we're in Kharkiv. I can uh, I can talk generally uh, about locations. Yes. Uh, so what's the situation there? That's what, about 40 kilometers or so from the Russian border? Yes, sir. Right. So this has been one of the focal points of the conflict and certainly where there's been a lot of need for uh, humanitarian work, which is a big part of what you've been doing. But d- describe for us, if you can, the situation in Kharkiv. Well, I guess for your listeners in Alberta, it's sort of like uh, Calgary is like Kharkiv. They're actually somewhat similar. And um, the uh, the war would be in Canmore, Banff, Lake Louise, uh, Rocky Mountain House, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Pincher Creek, uh, Blairmore, and so 
Kharkiv is a, a big hub. Uh, there's quite a, quite a bit of activity here, um, and it was attacked at the beginning of the war, and it continues to be attacked. And it receives uh, missiles, missile strikes, on a fairly regular basis, and uh, it, very few of them are are really targeted. They seem to just be lobbing these missiles into Kharkiv to maximize the terror factor. The fact that the Russians haven't been able to take Kharkiv, I mean, what, what does that tell us about, you know, the, the spirit of Ukrainians, the resistance that Ukrainians have, have been putting up to this invasion now almost two years on? Yeah, I think that's what the world sees. And that's, the, you know, that's the two years. Why this three-day special military operation is now uh, 700 and some days um, is because of that spirit and that resilience and that ability to adapt and to deal with adversity and their dream to be uh, a free country, a sovereign country, and to potentially uh, be a European country and part of the European Union and uh, live their lives just like we would in Canada and pursue their interests and raise their families and uh, uh, have their aspirations fulfilled. And yeah. to work alongside Ukrainian people is a very, uh, it's, a, it's an honor, an absolute honor. Paul, talk about what drew you there. I mean, you, you went, you know, pretty much right after the invasion. Sue uh, and Andrew Schultz here Helping Ukraine grassroots support. Uh, you've been doing, you know, this, this on the ground work. But what, what drew you there in the first place? Uh, some of some of the things that I just I just mentioned mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know I believe in sovereignty I believe in freedom uh, I don't know any Canadians who don't really um, as much as that word freedom has been kind of distorted as of late but uh, over here they truly believe in freedom um, they are a sovereign country um, a lot of times people hear. They talk about uh, the relationship with uh, Russia. It's it's a like a domestic relationship, and Ukraine just wants out of the relationship. They just want out. They they just want to go on with their lives. Uh, but they can't just pack everything up and leave. They are neighbors, yeah. uh, and so they have to deal with with Russia's anger and aggression and um, murderous, genocidal type tendencies that they have. Um, uh, Russia just can't let go, and uh, so Ukraine has to Ukraine has to find some way to move forward. And so, when I first saw those images, like so many uh, of us back home in Canada, um, I was compelled to to become involved and do something about it. It was just a time in my life where I was able to actually do something like that, and so I decided to pursue it. But I was also very fortunate because I was on a radio show in Calgary and. You know, I didn't really have the funds to come over to Ukraine. And as soon as the interview was done, uh, within two minutes, a man called me and said, I'll I'll pay for your way over there and give you some money to get started. And so uh, I took him up on it. He said, when do you want when do you want to go? And I'm like, well, no time like present. Yeah. 24 hours later, I was on a plane to Ukraine. What kind of humanitarian work have you been doing? What What is the humanitarian need there? 
Uh, it's everything you could possibly imagine. Um, there's there's a war. Um, communities are being destroyed. Uh, people are being displaced. So you have, uh, especially at the beginning of the war when I came here, there's there's massive uh, movement of humanity. Uh, millions and millions of people were moving. We're going to Poland, Romania, uh, Europe. So there was there was all that, and, and these are people that are just these are people that are just uh, grabbing a couple of bags that they have and running. So uh, so there's that. There's there's always the need for um, food and shelter. That's constant uh, as people are being displaced and their homes are being destroyed. Uh, now that some people, IDPs, especially people internally, internally displaced people within Ukraine, uh, they have sp- special unique needs. Uh, there's a lot of children. Uh, of course, there's nutritional needs. There's clothing. There's bedding. Um, there's education. I mean, th- these are these are these are young young people. These are children that have been impacted and traumatized. So oh, yeah. it's uh, there's 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 some serious issues around uh, humanity, and it it doesn't stop. It's not like you know one day it's like a forest fire, and the forest fire is over, and mm-hmm. then you can start trying to get back to normal and rebuild your lives. It's it's like a forest fire every day. It's like an earthquake every day. It's like a tsunami every day. Oh, so yeah. that's that's the challenge here. Is that you know some people say. Hey, when are you coming home, Paul? And it's like, right. well, it just—it's not ending. No, uh, you know the reason why I responded and came here to help these people—it it just doesn't end. It, How worried are you right now? I mean, you know, there's, there's, it feels like maybe Western support for Ukraine is waning, or certainly when it comes to to American support for Ukraine, which has been so crucial. You know, the concern that the Russians might be making some some progress. I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts, or how concerned should we be? Um, well, I mean, I know people in Ukraine are very concerned Yeah. They, uh, because if Russia stops, well, Russia will continue to exist. If Ukraine stops, Ukraine will no longer exist. Right. Uh, so the stakes are very, very high. Um, but you know, this, this is, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't use the word normal, but you know, you know, um, uh, there's there's a lot going on in uh, in this in this world and and so to to stay on the front pages you know for two years this is very very difficult and and I don't know if the support is waning but it is a long it is a long war and and it's it's definitely not as robust as it was at the beginning of the war and this happens this is the cycle that happens with any uh, with any disaster or any conflict or any any chaos around the world there is that immediate outpouring of support and I'm actually. I'm actually very, very impressed with the world mm-hmm. that there has been so much support for Ukraine. So, you know, um, credit where credit is due, and uh, but it's it hasn't stopped. So we have to continue to do as much as we can with what we have and try to support the Ukrainians um, whenever possible. Well, let people know they can find out more about the work your group is doing. It's hugsukraine.org. Paul, I'm glad we were able to connect. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today, and uh, and be well. All the best over there. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for reaching out, Rob. It's uh, it's good to hear your voice, and uh, and hello to everybody back in uh, in Alberta. 
There you go. Paul Hughes uh, on the ground in Kharkiv in Ukraine. Uh, him and his son Mackenzie and the group they founded. It's called Hugs, helping Ukraine grassroots, uh, grassroots support. HugsUkraine.org. You read more about the work they're doing over there. And uh, yeah, Paul says he's not going anywhere anytime soon. I think it just shows how competitive um, you have to be in this country here. Um, for our, a strong company like Lynx, our performance was phenomenal. And to see them go down is you know, testament to how you know, powerful the airline has to be to operate. In- well, kind of a bittersweet moment for that guy, uh, William Kidd, uh, one of the employees at Lynx, who will be losing his job but saying that he's proud to have worked for the low-cost carrier. Uh, so we learned last night that the Calgary-based budget airline is going out of business. They filed for creditor protection. They're going to cease operations after this weekend. Already hearing uh, of flights being canceled, three flights out of Calgary tomorrow being canceled. Apparently there was one to LAX today that was. Uh, so passengers are now having to scramble, both in terms of getting refunds. And if you're going to get one, it's going to have to be through your credit card company because the airline won't be providing refunds. And then, of course, finding another flight. And that's going to mean for folks who are are stranded somewhere else and trying to get home. So certainly some chaos and disruption in the immediate aftermath of this. But some bigger questions, I guess, in terms of the strength of the industry. Look, Canadians are flying. Canadians are traveling. Um, But is there limited room when it comes to options, when it comes to competition? There's a lot of regulation that these companies have to deal with, a lot of costs that these companies have to deal with. And that, that's a factor here, too. So joining us for some thoughts on what this all means, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Carl Moore, Associate Professor of the Desautel Faculty of Management at McGill University. Uh, Carl, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. So in terms of how surprised we should be by this, I mean, what, what, what was your level of surprise upon hearing this? Not overly. I mean, there's been kind of rumors of it uh, around for a while now. Uh, we were hopeful it wouldn't happen. I visited uh, WestJet in Calgary a number of times over the years to interview the CEO. Uh, and there's a set of plaques where there have been, I'm still sure there, of airlines that have gone bankrupt in Canada. And there's been a lo- dozens of them in my lifetime. Yeah. And, and why WestJet has it, they just remind their employees that it's a tough world out there. And so we've seen a lot. If you go on Wikipedia, there's dozens of airlines in Canada that have gone bankrupt in my lifetime, which is a longer lifetime, but still. <laughs> it's a tough world in the aviation uh, market in Canada, partly because of high prices charged by airports for fees is a real element of it. Uh, but also strong competitors like Air Canada, Canadian back in the day, now part of Air Canada and WestJet and Porter are, are good competitors that... Um, bring a, a, a different offer to the table, which makes it harder for ultra-low-cost or low-cost carriers to survive. And we, we've seen evidence of that all too often in Canada. So, I mean, was this a byproduct of just a, a really tough competitive and regulatory landscape? Or is it fair to say, you know, maybe the company had some missteps? Or, you know, to what extent do we blame the company versus the, their, their reality in this country? Well, part of it is, like, every company makes mistakes. So to say they were imperfect is just a statement of human fact. But on the other hand, you look at it and say, well, are there other competitors that had similar headwinds that you faced and managed to survive and prosper? 
part of it is the kind of the how deep are the po- pockets behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had Claridge from Montreal supporting them and a couple other firms where fairly deep pockets. But at a certain point, they're good business people. And they're not going to keep investing, you know, throwing good money after bad if it, it doesn't look like there's going to be a good future that it's going to work out. So uh, they took a, you know, a run at it, didn't work out. There's some genuine headwinds they're facing. Did they make mistakes? Absolutely, but that's just being human. Right. Uh, by the way, I mean, Flair is, you know, the other more recent upstart low-cost carrier. They've, they've had some bumps along the way, too. There was some talk or some speculation maybe that they would merge or one would buy the other. I mean, is that kind of off the table now that Lynx is shutting down? Or is there maybe here something that, that Flair can, can step in and gobble well, up? they might take over leases. Some of the planes might hire some of the pilots and mm-hmm. the flight attendants. But clearly, you know, if you're going bankrupt, one of the things they would absolutely look at as senior management is, should we merge? Mm-hmm. Like, is that going to give us better results for our investors and for our employees? So they undoubtedly look at it. And, you know, if you go to Air Canada, do you want to merge? They go, no go away. Uh, We're not interested, and that's fair enough, or WestJet. But, you know, something where there was rumors of it for good reason, undoubtedly they talked to them, and either they were rejected or it just didn't make sense from a business viewpoint. Now, those headwinds you talk about, so the company cited a few in in their statements. So rising operating costs, higher fuel prices, exchange rates, increasing airport charges, and a difficult economic and regulatory environment. So I think that's all there. I mean, it's it's fair to point those things out. Yeah. Everybody's dealing with those. But I mean, is is there any of that that, you know, we could dial back? Is there any way that we could make it a little easier on these airlines to make a go of it? Well, the government could charge or the airports could charge less. We have some of the bigger landing fees in the world, mm-hmm. uh, which impacts all the all the companies, obviously, when they fly. Um, that'd be something that the government and, and you know, the airports could do. Um, something like inflation in a challenging environment and winter. We can't change that as much as we'd like to. Uh, but a lot of Canadians, we like to fly south, what they call sun destinations in the winter. So there's a big surge there, Christmas time, the winter time, March break. But then there's interim periods where there, the demand goes down more than it does in many parts of the world. So we have a up and down demand based on our weather which makes perfectly good sense. We understand yeah. why, but it makes it a bit more challenging to uh, compete f- effectively here. Well, it does. And, I mean, you've, when you've got two big players that, that take up so much of the oxygen, as it were, um, how much of a factor is that for any upstarts? What's the reality of having to pe- compete against Air Canada and WestJet? What's up is they have, they have great service, loyal clients. I'm a frequent flyer on both, so I get points, so that's attractive. They have lounges I can go to if I'm a frequent flyer. So they have some nice things. Like I was uh, flying Air Transat out of Miami. I did a McGillivan in Miami last Thursday. And so Friday, uh, turns out the, the plane broke down. So I actually flew Saturday. But, you know, the plane broke down. But they mm-hmm. don't have a lot of planes. They only have the one there, one or two in Miami, where Canada would tend to have more planes, particularly in the big cities of, of Canada. So it, it makes it harder to do that. Um, they don't have business class. So I, it was amusing because I was flying into Miami. It was a lot of uh, flying to Montreal, a lot of elderly francophones largely, or uh, families with small kids who don't need to be in school. I was the only suit on the plane, and they were kind of teasing me about it. But I'm there. I have my laptop up. I'm trying to get work done. There's no Wi-Fi. Where uh, if I'm a business person flying in Air Canada or WestJet, there's business class. If someone will pay for it, nicer seats. I can fly, sleep across the Atlantic, 
arrive rested. And I, I've flown Air Canada a few times as a freaking flyer, not in business class, but go won't pay for it. But when I get there, because I'm a freaking flyer, I go have a shower at the Heathrow Lounge. And I would put my clothes in the in the door, and they would iron them while I was having my shower. <laughs> so, you know, it makes it easier as a road warrior, if you can sleep on the plane, if you can have a shower, go out there and do your business, as opposed to sitting in the back. Uh, you got to pay for food. We arrived at Air, um, uh, Trudeau Airport, and we had to get on a bus in order to go to the terminal, which I haven't done for years. But yeah. it's ultra-low cost means that it saves money. And that's, you know, have low costs is, is absolutely part of what they need to do. And they also want to charge you for food. They have no entertainment. So there's something where it's a model which does not appeal remotely to business people because they're frequent flyers or road warriors. And, you know, their companies rightly will tend to pay for them to do that because of what they're demanding from them. So they don't have the, the revenue from the front. Uh, so that makes it harder financially. Um, they've got to look at costs in every turn. And it means that business people who travel all year round are less attracted to them. So there's some negatives to that model. But on the other hand, if I'm paying for it out of my own pocket, it does appeal to me without a doubt. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And now what's what's a factor, too, I guess, is still, you know, the impact of the pandemic. Now, links didn't exist in 2020 when travel was was basically shut down. They launched in April of 2022. But what's the hangover effect of all of that and the impact it's it's had on the industry and just, you know, the challenge in the industry had in responding to that sudden rush back of, of all of that demand? Well, the big problem they had coming out of COVID was, you know, uh, lots of debts. Uh, but they had to keep, to some degree, paying for the plane lease, paying some employees and so on. But, you know, I would go out to Trudeau Airport during the pandemic, and there'd be six flights in the day versus the normal 200 sort of thing. Yeah. So revenue fell off a cliff, but they still had debts to pay and so on. So coming out of the um, COVID crisis, many airlines had huge debts. Sometimes the governments would help them with them or help pay their employees. Uh, but they lost quite a few employees. Like a lot of pilots decided to retire because they're of an age to some of the other pilots uh, saw that you could make more money uh, flying out of the Middle East and not pay taxes or Canadian taxes. And it was a real opportunity. So there's a worldwide shortage of pilots, which meant there was a sucking sound out of the Canadian uh, industry to other parts of the world and people retiring just because they said this is going to be a year or two. I might as well just get be done with it. So uh, there was there's some real problems coming out of there, um, but on the other positive side, that there was kind of a uh, a rebound of travel. After being at home for a couple of years, we want to we save money up because we weren't spending on things. Yeah. We want to travel, want to get out there. So the, the positive side, there was quite a good demand after the COVID uh, crisis passed. We'll see what the fallout is moving forward here, Carl. Appreciate your insight uh, as always. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Always a pleasure. All Bye the best. Uh, Carl Moore, Associate Professor of the Desantel Faculty of Management, McGill University, with a specific focus on the airline industry. So we've seen this over the years, over the decades even, you know, airlines come and go. And there are some real challenges uh, in that sector, even at the best of times. Uh, it links pointing to rising operating costs, higher fuel prices, exchange rates, increasing airport charges in a difficult economic and regulatory environment. So policymakers do have some control over some of that. So I think if we wanted to make it easier for these airlines to make a go of it, we could revisit some of that. Some of the, you know, the regulations we have in the industry with the, the charges that airports levy, 
those kinds of things. Uh, some of the other factors are a little bit more outside of our control. So whether this uh, opens the door for somebody else, I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm, you know, maybe WestJet or Canada, they'll just snap up a lot of this business. Maybe Flair can benefit somewhat. Uh, in terms of whether there's any sort of a merger or takeover still on the table, I mean, that's uh, still an open question, I think. There have been rumors about Flair and Lynx looking at something. That that could still happen, I guess, in terms of what, uh, you know, the folks who run Lynx Air decide to do now. Uh, and maybe someone else looks at this and says, you know what, a small um, low-cost carrier can make a go of it. Lynx just didn't do it right, but now that they're out of the way, we could give it a go. Will we see that? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.